increasingly, I find myself just feeling so out of it in this world. And I don't think it's just because I'm 53 years old now and bald either. I don't think you have to be 53 or bald to feel this way in our world today. Are there times in the high school classroom or on the college campus when you feel like you are the last man or woman left standing who still believes in the God of the Bible and his word and his ways? Do you ever feel like your ears are burning at the neighborhood picnic or in the gym as you overhear a group of people snorting and laughing about someone they know that just became a Christian or started going to church and they talk about her now as if she's a nutcase who has lost her mind? Do you ever have times when you question your own intellectual powers as you listen to the media dissect and humiliate any public leader who still holds to a faith in Jesus Christ? Or as you read articles or blogs about some of the world's brightest and best minds who just rail against the God of the Bible and Christianity as if it is utter foolishness and only ignorant people could ever believe such a thing. That's why we're doing this series right now that I'm calling Unstoppable. Talking about what God has been doing for over 2,000 years now through his church and through The power of the gospel. But just to make sure we're clear on where the power really is. I'm going to have us dig into two chapters of the Bible today that are two of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to settle in because I'm going to read all the way through chapter 2, verse 14, because it's so good. But I don't want you to take a mental vacation. Don't wander. Stay with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. And listen to me. If you had a Bible and your eyes could see words as I read them, it would be easier to stay with me. So what do I wish you would bring every Sunday with you to our church? We actually still use the Bible. I know that's fuddy-duddy. We still use the Bible. So bring one. Verse 18, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren. Not many mighty, not many noble are called. 
But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit, for the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive The things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, let me give you some background on what's going on in this city where these Christians received this letter, because I think it'll help you feel the impact of just how radical this message is that Paul is giving these Christians in Corinth. To appreciate it, you need to understand what was going on in their city right then. After lying dormant for nearly 100 years, the city of Corinth had been refounded by Julius Caesar in 44 BC as a Roman colony. And because of its strategic location for commerce, 100 years later, when Paul is writing this letter to these Christians in Corinth, it is now the largest city in Roman Greece. And it's very cosmopolitan, attracting people from all over the empire that are moving to Corinth to be a part of all that is happening there. 
And because the city was a city of opportunities and commerce, it was full of the nouveau riche. People who had recently jumped several levels up the economic ladder with lots of new money. And it was a very religious city because everybody that arrived brought their own distinctive deity with them. So religion was everywhere. But despite the religious fervor, it was a morally decadent city filled with sexual immorality and vice. And on top of that, they loved nothing more than to debate and flaunt their intellectual powers. One of their own historians, Dio Chrysostom, said this about Corinth. Quote, you might hear poor wretches of sophists. Sophist is another word for philosophy. So you might hear the followers of different philosophers arguing with each other. You might hear poor wretches of sophists shouting and abusing each other and their disciples, as they call them, squabbling. And many writers of books reading their stupid compositions. And many poets singing their poems and many jugglers exhibiting their marvels and many soothsayers giving the meaning of prodigies and 10,000 rhetoricians twisting lawsuits and no small number of traders driving their several trades. Sound like any of the cities that we're living in today? Here's what I think Christians need to constantly be reminded of. We're not living in a different kind of day. You may not see chariots and you see Lexus instead. You may see different ways of transportation, different ways. But the situation and the heart and the condition and the culture and the challenges are the same. And that would help us that we stop saying, oh, but it's so hard today. It's so different today. Not different. The Christians in Corinth receiving this letter were facing some of the very same things that we face in our cities today. Money. Big business, intellectual pride, diverse religions, moral decadence, and all kinds of lawsuits. Same. So here's what I want to do with the time that remains. And it might unsettle you at first, but hang on. I want to unsettle you at first, but then I hope to give you some hope that I think will really, really, really help you. I want to show you from this passage four reasons why Christians and Christianity have always looked foolish to our world. We need to stop saying, but oh, this is a new thing. They make fun of us now. Oh, this is a new thing. We look so odd now. I want to show you four reasons why Christians and Christianity have always looked foolish to our world. And yet, people keep coming to Christ from all over the world, including this country. And I'm going to show you why at the end. We look foolish, but people keep coming to Jesus Christ and their lives are changed. Here's the first thing you've got to understand. Number one, we've got a message that sounds utterly foolish to the world around us. The cross. What kind of message is that? A message that sounds utterly foolish. Look back in first Corinthians chapter one, verse 18, 19. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It's the power of God. Look down in chapter 2, verse 2. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So before we go on, let me unpack for you a little bit so you don't just not understand what we're talking about. That phrase, message of the cross, is simply shorthand. It captures the gospel, the message of the cross. 
Here's what the message of the cross simply is. That God, the one true living God, holy, mighty, just, sovereign, that God the Father did for us as sinners what we could never do for ourselves in sending his son, the God-man, to take on flesh and to arrive in a manger and to walk this earth and to be the only one who ever perfectly kept all of God's law. All of it, fulfilled it, kept it perfectly. And then gave his life, though he had no sin of his own, willingly gave his life as a sacrifice, as a payment For our sins, that when he hung on the cross, our sins were put on him, though he had none of his own. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says he became sin for us. Our sins were put on him and the wrath of God that should have been ours, that should have been poured out on us, was poured out on him. He drank the cup of God's wrath dry for us as the all-sufficient Never needs to be repeated payment. His blood was shed. His death was offered. No more need for bulls and goats and heifers and other sacrifices. And now anyone who puts their trust in him, who believes he is who the scripture says he is and did what the scriptures say he did, can be forgiven, made right, With the God of the universe, not because you deserve it, not because you're keeping the Ten Commandments, not because you treat other people the way you'd like them to treat you. That's all works, my friend, by faith and God's mercy. And you receive this forgiveness that can never be taken from you. That's the message of the cross. That's what the Christians were preaching. That's the message of Christianity all through these years. When Paul wrote this letter and was preaching this message, but here's what you need to understand. As he wrote this letter and was preaching this message, this message offended the Jews. They stumbled all over it. Because for them, it was impossible for anybody who died on a cross to be the son of God, to be God. No way. Because in their Old Testament, Deuteronomy 21, 23, it said, he that hangs, he that is hanged is cursed by God. For them, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was the very proof that he could not be God. He could not be. He was not and could not be the Messiah they were looking for. Now, never mind what they did with Isaiah 53 that just clearly shows the suffering Savior. They were looking for a king. They were looking for someone to throw out Rome and to set up. For them, this is not the Messiah. This cannot be our hope. This cannot be the Son of God. For the the Greeks, on the other hand, it wasn't a stumbling block. It was sheer folly, foolishness, utter nonsense. Because here was their deal. Their notion of God, for them, the notion of a suffering God who feels for mankind and gets involved with mankind and that would take on flesh incarnation and step into our world and be sacrificed for us. Their top characteristic of God, when they talked about a God, was apatheia. What word do we get from that? 
apathy, but it was far more than apathy. For them, the very definition of God, what made God God was he does not feel for anyone else and he does not suffer and he cannot suffer and he does not get involved with us. He's detached from us and the affairs of our world. So the very idea of incarnation, crucifixion, of God becoming one of us and dying on a cross was revolting to the Greek mind and utter folly. Now, maybe you don't know this, But this is still one of the biggest stumbling blocks and problems for Muslims today. There's lots of differences between Christianity and Islam. But this is one of the biggest stumbling blocks. The crucifixion of Jesus. They will actually say, we honor Jesus more than you Christians do. Because we refuse to believe that God would allow Jesus to die in that kind of humility and horrific pain and humiliation and ignominy. No way. They say God the Father rescued Jesus from the cross and took him to heaven. He did not die on the cross. And they'll say, that's why we honor Jesus more than you do. Here's my point. This message of the cross has always been an offense. It did not become offensive through the years. Let me show you what I'm talking about. The very first depiction of crucifixion that we have known, known in history. The very first depiction that we have of crucifixion of Christ is a graffito. That's a word that means a, a crude or rude decoration drawing that's scratched on a wall or in stone. And this was the earliest graffito that's been found scratched into stone just years after the gospel was being preached in Rome. Let me show you what it looks like. It's a rough sketch of a man crucified on a cross, but with the head of a donkey. And standing next to the cross is a young man with his arm lifted in reverence or worship to God. But those letters that are scratched below it, you know what it says? Alexamenos, it's the name of the young man, worships his God. They were mocking Christians and saying, you worship an ass. How could God die on a cross? There's no way God. This was foolishness. This was contemptible to our world from the very beginning. We've got a message that is utterly foolish to the world. Let me show you a second reason why Christianity Christians have always looked foolish. It's the method. We've got a method that looks totally foolish to our world. Preaching. Preaching. That's not very high tech, right? I mean, like do a light show, God. I mean, write things across the sky. I mean, you got all this power. This is how you're going to get this done, preaching. And when I say preaching, please don't put yourself outside of that and say, you go, man. That's why we got people like you and some others on staff. We'll cheer you on, big guy. No. Let me put it this way to you. Just proclaiming words. We are a word-oriented religion. Word, not mysticism, not smells and bells and ooh, word. We're not that religion. It's like, I think I see Jesus in a cloud and I think Mary's in my omelet. No, 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 no. (laughs) Other people do that. That's not what we're about. It's words, words, word. God is a word oriented in John 1, 1. He said, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And he's given us a revelation that's in words and he's called us to share words. Just think in terms of proclaiming this message of the cross. All of us, all of us. You don't have to have a pulpit You don't have to have a microphone. You don't have to draw a crowd. This is how God intended. And this is what Christians have been doing from the very beginning. And it looks so foolish. 
so weak, so incapable of accomplishing anything. Look at, look at it in verses 21 to 23. In chapter 1. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. In a world, listen to me, in a world that is so committed to save ourselves, a theology of we can save ourselves. The preaching of the cross is intolerable. But that's what God's called us to do, proclaiming the message of the cross. And and let me tell you something I hope will help you take a deep breath and settle down. God's word. There's no command in the Bible to defend God. He calls us to proclaim God. God doesn't need us to defend him, folks. We're not called to defend him. There's certainly a place for having answers to some of the questions of people, but please know you will never argue anyone into the kingdom. We're not called to defend God. He's a big God. He can take care of himself. Don't feel bad for him. He's called us to proclaim him. Now, if you're thinking, but what about the verse in 1 Peter 3.15, Brad? Okay. It says, be ready to give a defense. It is the Greek word apologia, where we get apologetics. But listen to what our defense is supposed to be about. Be ready to give a defense or an answer to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We're supposed to be living in a way because of the truth of the gospel and what God has done for us. And we're adopted and redeemed and ransomed. And we have an inheritance. We got direct access to the throne 24 hours a day. We've been set free and forgiven. We don't live with condemnation hanging over us. We live in such a way we don't have to grab right here, right now, because we know we've got glory coming, new heaven, new earth. You live in such a way that people would say, How do you live this way? Why are you hopeful in the face of the death of your wife, in the face of cancer, in the face of unemployment, in the face of rebellious kids, in the face of, face of, face of, face of? When you live hopeful, they ask why. And then you share the gospel and what Jesus has done in your life. Be ready to give an answer for the hope. There's no verse that calls us to defend God. Proclaim him. Big difference. Proclaim God. Commenting on this passage, Tom Wright says, quote, the point is that when Paul came into a pagan city that prided itself on its intellectual and cultural life and stood up to speak about Jesus of Nazareth who had been crucified by the Romans but raised from the dead by God and who was now the Lord of the world summoning people to faithful obedience, he knew what people would think. This was and is the craziest message anybody could imagine. This wasn't a smart new philosophy. It was madness. It was not an appeal to high culture. It was news of an executed criminal from a despised race. The Christian good news is all about God dying on a rubbish heap at the wrong end of the empire. It's all about God babbling nonsense to a room full of philosopher. It's all about the true God confronting the world of its posturing, power, and prestige and overthrowing it in order to set up his own kingdom. Get this, when Paul was proclaiming the message of the cross, folks... It sounded just as crazy and the means and the method looked just as foolish. If you feel, uh, as you do this, you're not the first. 
You know, sometimes we're guilty of thinking, I bet back in that day, they just naturally believed stuff like this. No, they didn't. No. We're not the first to proclaim the message of the cross. They think that's foolish in a method that they think is foolish. But let me show you something else that just oh, rocks them. The other reason they've always seen us as foolish is we've got a motive that seems shockingly foolish to the world. The glory of God. Oh my goodness, what is it that's at root, this base nature of men and women to live for who? Self, self. We live in a world that is so busy promoting and pushing and exalting self. This sounds ludicrous to live for the good and glory of someone else, to live connected to something bigger than just you and your agenda and your kingdom and what's going on with you. Look at it in verses 29 to 31. That no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, you see what's going on there? Christ became for us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. What are we doing? Receiving and bringing our stinking sin. This isn't like, well, here's what we offer and here's what God offers and bam, I can thank him a little, but I had something to do with this. You had nothing to do with it. And when that, when that gets a hold of you and you realize, oh my goodness, the message of the cross, listen to me, makes much of God and puts us in our place. And that's why the world hates this message, folks. Hates it, hates it, hates it. John Stott says, nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness. Until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. The world doesn't like anything that shrinks us down. No, 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 no. But when you come to the cross and you recognize that God has done for you something you could have never done for yourself, it humbles you, but it doesn't just do that. It doesn't just humble you. It then inspires you and fills you with gratitude, not out of debt. I owe God, I owe God, I owe God. No, that's why Paul said in in 2 Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ compels me now. You've got a new motive for living for the glory of God out of gratitude. And it's your great joy. And it's so freeing to not be living such a small, suffocating, little kingdom life. The world can't figure that out. Why would you do this? This makes no sense. Absolutely no sense. But now let me ask something. If this message is so foolish to them, and they keep saying it is, and you're so ignorant, why are they so threatened by it? Why not just say, you stupid people, just babble around with saliva hanging out of the corner of your mouth and just say this to each other. In fact, say it to anybody you want because it's so stupid, nobody's going to believe this. Just go. They don't. Why do some of the brightest and best spend such energies blasting away at the message of the cross? I'll tell you why. Because the message of the cross gives a death blow to our self-deluded pride and our self-inflated egos that say we can solve our biggest problems on our own without the help of any God. 
education, research, and more money is all we need to achieve the harmony and peace and sense of purpose that we're all striving for in this world. That's why someone like a Dr. Francis Crick, right? Dr. Francis Crick can discover, can discover after years and years and years how the genetic code works, unraveling DNA in its beauty and complexity and wonder has a mind bright enough to map that and to discover that as well as to begin to offer some amazing cures for sicknesses and illnesses. But with that same brilliant mind still persist in darkness and resist acknowledging that God has anything to do with it. Shortly before his death, Francis Crick wrote a book entitled The Astonishing Hypothesis, The Scientific Search for the Soul. And in that book, he says, quote, you and your joys and your sorrows and your memories and your ambitions and your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. According to Dr. Crick, folks, you and I are nothing more than just matter in motion. Matter in motion. And those who look for any further meaning deeper than that are ignorant and foolish. But here's, I'm about to give you my favorite quote from Dr. Crick that indicts him. He says this, quote, biologists must constantly keep in mind. He didn't say just keep this in mind. He said, you got to constantly keep this in mind. Biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but evolved. Why, Dr. Crick, if we're so stupid, seems like it wouldn't be a problem. No one's going to think that. Why does he warn biologists and scientists and people in general and young people today, be careful, be careful, be careful as you investigate our universe, as you dig into our universe, just constantly keep saying to yourself, this was not designed, this was not designed, it just evolved. If evolution is so compelling and so convincing and so locked down obvious, why would you need to say that? I'll tell you why. Because those that dig into our world to any degree, not just biology, mathematics or music or geography or geology or astronomy. It doesn't matter where you dig, folks, oceanography. As you dig into our world, you come face to face and you end up with a front row seat of overwhelming evidence that there must be a God. This could not have happened from an explosion. Last explosion I saw in the news left shrapnel, but not anything wonderful. This could not have just happened. This could not have just happened. So he's got to say, watch out, watch out. Constantly remind yourself. I know it looks like someone amazing with power and wisdom and wonder and beauty did this, but not. Why? See, here's the deal, folks. You actually have to work hard and put forth effort and be intentional to not believe in God. That's what he was doing. You say, Brad, you don't even know Dr. Crick. I don't have to. God knows him as well as each one of us. And you know what God said in Romans chapter one? For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who 
And you would think next he's going to say, who murder, who slander, who steal, who lie, who covet, who. And all that's true. But he's about to tell us something that's far bigger than that. That's the under, undergirding problem of all of that. Who suppress the truth by the, the truth of what? That there is a God. I am accountable to someone. I'm not just an animal. I'm not just a collection of molecules. I am in the image of God. And there is a God. And I'm going to answer to God. And I'm part of something bigger. You have to suppress that. Who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God. Is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible qualities and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Nobody will stand before God and say, but I didn't know. I didn't have enough evidence. I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know. You knew. Let me show you another reason why we've always looked foolish. Not just the message, the method, and the motive that is just like foolishness to them. Oh, when you add this, they're just like, what? We've got a history. I'm sorry. I hope this doesn't offend you. We've got a history of attracting people that the world would mostly consider foolish. Look at what it says in verses 26 to 28. Not a very impressive resume for Christians and what they look like. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many. Now be careful. It doesn't say not any. Not many. So praise God that there are brilliant Christians, men and women, in in every field. But, But listen to what he's about to say. Not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty. We've got some mighty. Not many noble. We've got some are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world. And the things which are despised. God has chosen. And the things which are not. What he's saying is we just are not. We're not. Whatever it is the world says is it, you're not. You're not. You're just not. And God delights in taking what's not to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? If, if the church was loaded up with all the people that the world said were the very best, the very best, we would get all the glory. God takes those that the world considers are not and uses these weak, base, despised, not mighty, not noble, To do what he does so that no flesh glories in his presence. But the Lord would get the glory. The Lord would get the glory. The Lord would get the glory. Listen, my friend, the message of the cross, this is such good news. The message of the cross is blind to color, culture, class, creed. It's good news for every person sitting here today, today, regardless of your background, your family, your education, your money, your IQ. For over 2,000 years now, Christianity has been inviting everyone to come, to come, to come, regardless of your status or standing in this world. So what keeps you from coming to Christ? The government can't save you, my friend. After November 8th, nor Trump, neither Hillary will save you. I'm going to vote. I'm going to vote for one of them. But neither one can save you. 
Neither one. The government can't save you. Your money can't save you. Your education can't save you. Your intellectual prowess can't save you. Only Jesus can save you. And don't sit there and say, he wouldn't have you. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30, come to me. All who are weary and carrying heavy burdens and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. For I am gentle and of a humble spirit, and I will give rest for your soul. Come. Today he calls, come, come. You don't have to clean yourself up first. You don't have to achieve certain things. You don't have to sign a card, shake my hand, go through a class. Come to Christ. And some of you are weary, and it's not your workload. It's not the the pain and the suffering in your life. There is a weariness that comes with carrying the burden of your own sin and trying to solve it or trying to pretend it's not there and trying to project yourself as better than you are or on the treadmill of works righteousness. It is exhausting. And Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. The same Jesus said in John chapter six, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He's not talking about physical food. He's talking about soul food. That sense of why am I here? What is my purpose? What, what is going on? What, I, I got to be connected to something bigger than just jobs and houses and babies and marriage or not marriage and jobs and career. I need more. I know you need more because you're created in the image of God. You need soul food. That hunger will only be satisfied in Christ. And then he goes on and say to Je- in John six thirty five, and whoever comes to me, I will by no means cast out. He's never turned anyone away. Your whole life, people may have rejected you. People may have called you the biggest loser and that you don't belong. But Christ says, come to me and I will not cast you out. You know what your biggest problem really is? All of us, and it always has been. Pride and a desire to control our own lives. And those two things feed off each other. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, pride is probably the last citadel to give way when the Holy Spirit is dealing with a man or woman's soul. Is the Holy Spirit dealing with you? Give way. Humble yourself. Look to Christ. Trust in Christ. Turn to Christ. He will not cast you away. Come. Come. But now, in the minutes I have left, let me show you something so encouraging. So there's why it's not a new day. We've always looked foolish. The message is foolish. The method is foolish. The motive is foolish. And they think most of us fit in the category of foolish. So why do men and women keep coming to Christ from all over the world, every country, every continent, every culture? I'll tell you why. It's all over chapter 2. That's why it took us on into chapter two. And here is why. The Holy Spirit is at work in our world today. And he alone has the power to change the minds of people concerning what they think is foolish or not. Oh, as you go into chapter two, folks, I hope you picked up on it. Read it again this afternoon because the Bengals aren't playing today. So you've got nothing else to do. (laughs) Seven times he mentions the spirit in 10 verses. The spirit, the spirit, the spirit. Listen, Christian, 
We're not going out there to try to make something happen. He's just called us to be the mailman. He's just called us to sow the seed. He's just called us to proclaim the message of the cross. The Holy Spirit is already there where you work. He's already in your neighborhood. He's already in that gymnasium. He's already in the produce section when you get there. He is at work and the Spirit of God has the power to lift the darkness from minds so that people who said at one time, that is so foolish, will say, Precious, best news I've ever heard. I want that. The spirit of the living God is at work in our world today. He has not been diminished. There's no shelf life on him. In fact, the further we go into the last days and we're there, he's moving mightily. We don't have might. We are weak. We don't have all the answers, nor do you have to have all the answers. He's called us to proclaim this message of the cross. And he works, he works, he works. Later in this same letter, Paul in chapter four says this, for we have been made a spectacle to the world. We are fools for Christ's sake. Now let me help you. If, you, if When you hear the word spectacle, you just think something that's horrible, like ugh. It's, it's more than that. It's really helpful. The word spectacle there in the Greek, the original language that it was written in, is the word theatron from which we get our English word theater or stage. When God rescues you, Christian, he's not done with you. It's his desire to make your life a theater or a stage that puts on display the mercy and goodness and power of God. Just keep being weak, perfect. Because we don't need you to get in the way on that stage. We don't need the spotlight on you. But your life becomes a theater where, where when people can say, it can't be you. What else is going on in your life? Every single Christian is a spectacle or a theater or a stage from which God's goodness and glory can be displayed. That's why in the second letter of the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, he said, For we have this treasure, the treasure of the gospel. And Jesus Christ living us in earthen vessels. Why? That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. I, I, I want to share with you a testimony. Someone in our church family sent me an email just a couple weeks ago. I said, oh, Pastor Brad, I'm so excited. I've got a story to tell like what I hear you tell. He says, about two months ago, I had my first experiencing traveling by airplane ever. I got settled into, into my seat and next to me was an empty seat. And I started thinking about you, Brad, and your stories about talking to people on airplanes. And I thought, yep, this is the exact situation he talks about. Open seat next to me, waiting to see who shows up. So I decided maybe I should be listening to the Holy Spirit and see if he had a mission for me that day. Again, this is not a missionary. It's not a pastor. He's got his PhD in oboe. He was a musician, all right? A few minutes later, a woman sits down and starts to a conversation with me immediately. At some point, I mentioned this is my first time flying. And she excitedly responded by saying, oh, well, we need an essential oil for that. And she busts out a little vial and she starts waving it around and she wants me to smell it. As we got into the air, we continued talking and I was on the lookout for an opportunity to bring up Jesus. She seemed very new agey and kind of in touch with the universe. 
So I went to my spaciest, trippiest, most existential questions about the world I could think of. Stuff like, isn't it weird to exist? (laughs) Nice job. Remember, I always said ask questions, but consider what you're dealing with. So there we are talking about existing and smelling like some kind of frankincense oil. When the Holy Spirit totally threw me a bone, bam, she turned to me and said, she says, so what do you think your purpose in this world is? He says, I was able to tell her that my purpose is to know and worship Jesus, who is God. And that because of what he's done for me on the cross, I've been liberated to go into the world and be a blessing and lead others back to the source of my redemption so that they can find mercy as well. I got to talk about what Christ has rescued me from, sin and death, and tell her that Jesus calls her to serve him as well. It was awesome to see the Lord take what little I had to offer and turn it into a situation where a gospel seed was planted. Do you hear the excitement? That's how I feel every time. I, I, it'll, it'll be true for you too. When you have an opportunity to share the message of the cross, you never feel more alive than right then. It's almost like I'm doing what I was made to do. And here's what's so cool. When the grace of God explodes in your life, that message that you thought was so foolish is now so precious. That method that you thought was so foolish becomes a method you actually find yourself being a part of through you speaking. That motive that you thought was so foolish is now life-changing and freeing. It's not foolish, it's freeing to live for something bigger than me and to be connected to something bigger than me and to live for the glory of God. And those people that you thought were such losers, Christians, they actually become dear to you. Many of you have found better friendships in Christianity than you've had in your entire life. Some of those people are more dear to some of you than your biological families. What a turnaround. What if we had 1,800 fools for Christ here at Grace Fellowship that were willing to be a spectacle, a theater, on your middle school campus, on the high school campus, on the college campus, in the marketplace, in that job place, in the gym, in the neighborhood, For the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And when you share the message of the cross, you're getting in on what God is doing. The Holy Spirit is already at work and has the ability to lift the darkness so that people who had been saying that is so utterly foolish by the power and work of the Spirit could say, That is so precious. Best news I've ever heard. Let's pray together. God, how I thank you for your word that we don't find ourselves saying, oh wow, we've got Noah and Joseph and Ruth and Deborah. I wish we had something that was applicable to today. We live in times that we, oh Lord, your word is so good, so relevant, so helpful, so life-changing, so encouraging, so equipping. God, I pray that you would use your word to stir in us a willingness not to try to defend you, but to proclaim you and to be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks us a reason for the hope, the hope that we have with meekness and fear. And we'll leave the heavy lifting to you.